Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have Jim Hoffman. Um, from, um, is, I'm sorry, I didn't write it down that I did. I forgot to ask you, is it Hoffs, Hoffsman Forge? Is, is that right? Hoffman Forge. Okay. Very good. Sorry. Sorry about that. I, I usually double check that and I, I push the record button. So <laughs> tell, uh, tell me about your background. Um, I came into this, uh, as some might say, the long way around the barn. Um, depends on how far back you want to go. Since I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with myself as a teenager, um, I decided to go into uh, the machine trades program at a, a brand new vocational school. And if I didn't like that sort of thing, I'd be able to pay for college that way because I knew my parents weren't going to pay anything for college. And uh, that's more or less what happened. I got involved with uh, reenacting, um, as we called it back in the 70s. 75 is when I started uh, doing a, a bicentennial sort of reenacting oh, yes. and a lot of people um that are more serious about it today prefer to call it living history <laughs> and that's really what led me into uh more or less um the thoughts of preservation i went to school in uh, salem college salem west virginia um when i first went there uh I started out in the program was called Heritage Arts and it was more of a craft program at that time. But the background on it was they had a lot of log buildings that were donated to them that they were putting up and trying to save those. So that aspect of, of preservation and the friends that took me down there to visit had moved a log house into a woods and I helped them put it back up. So I was interested in, in log house preservation at that point right. and uh, having a historical background um, as well as a craft background um, you know I wanted to do things as as correctly as possible instead of just looking at something that looks kind of like it sort of deal. right yeah and um, I ran out of money and I left college um, in 81 with an associate's degree I started working at a historic site and I left there and went on my own, um, started my own business, and continued the pursuit of the blacksmith's trade and trying to do things as historically uh, correct as possible. And those two kind of kept pushing me towards uh, working with other restorations and reconstructions. And I managed to go back to college 
in 86 to finish up my bachelor's degree and they had changed the program then to museum studies. So there was collections care, uh, exhibiting and different aspects added to the craft program to, to where it was more in line with museum work in right. that regard. Yeah. And that's really what kind of led me down the path. And um, having been self-employed most of my adult life, I also learned to um, say yes. I, I'm still <laughs> learning how to say no right. uh, and be as diversified as possible. And so I, I'm frequently called upon uh, by different organizations or individuals that are wanting to recreate something. And many times I have to provide them with research as well as the product. They don't know exactly what they want. So um, there's a certain amount of uh, research involved with a lot of the work I do. And whenever possible, I, I really prefer the client to tell me what they want. And if they're not certain, then we start discussions about what would be more appropriate. Right, right. And it helps to, I would think, sometimes if you're trying to match something that they already have or, you know, at least a certain style for the house rather than just starting, you know, because it's, sometimes it's hard to um, get on the same page as somebody else's vision if, if, if they don't, if they can't explain to you what they're really looking for. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I have different reference materials that I'm able to hand to clients or recommend that they look into uh, if, in the example of a house uh, reconstruction or restoration, um, there's, there's a couple of books that are still available either through libraries, um, not so much online right now as far as, um, I, I'm not sure where they are in the purchaseability right now. Right. Um, there's a few of them still out there, but um, I'll say, well, go check out this book and see if there's uh, items that you like or designs that you want. When it comes to an actual restoration, I prefer to uh, do exact copies of what was there. Right, um, yeah. You know, and, and a lot of times, uh, again, even in museum cases, they don't, the those that are in charge don't always understand exactly what they need. So that's where um, the research background comes in. Right. Yeah. And, and sometimes, um, especially if there's not an example, you're doing, you know, the best guess based on the region, the style, you know, but nobody knows for sure, especially if it's not there. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I think we've kind of talked about how you got started in preservation and, and, and why, why preservation. When you were working with the, um, initially after your associate's degree with the, um, was it a historical society or a, what kind yeah. of work were you doing there? I was working as a blacksmith at the village. Okay. Okay. So um, you've, you've cut the blacksmith theme has kind of gone through. It's just in different iterations. Yeah, uh, it's it's heavy on the the forge work as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, and not as heavy on the the research and consultation part. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, and that was a public open to the public five days a week, demonstrating just generic whatever. Right. Being able to make something quickly in a couple of minutes was the preferred idea instead of any major projects. Well, while so, somebody, well, somebody can stand there and watch you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
So tell me about the work you do now. It's a huge variety of work. Um, I just finished up this morning uh, tongs for a gunsmith blacksmith that's working on his own, um, providing him with tools for his work. Then I'm into uh, making strake nails, which are large headed nails for cannon wheels. I have a, an order that's pressing me that's that I got started on that before lunch. Um, after that, um, I have cooking utensils and, and axes and, and picks. It's just a big variety of work that I've gotten into. Uh, and that's part of the uh, staying alive as a small business. Right, it's right. A lot of variety. Um, 20 years ago, I was doing jackhammer bits for uh, paving companies, uh, redressing oh. them. Yeah, they need to be forged back out when they're broken or extremely dull. Right. Forge them back, best thing to do, and then grind them and reharden them. Um, so, I don't do very much of that these days. But um, it's mostly uh, museums and uh, individuals um, that are either reenactors or um, have a, an old house. Okay. Very good. And do you do, um, I know we chatted a little bit before, but do you do, do hardware and things like that also for, for houses? Oh yeah. 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 Um, I can't remember the name of the, uh, there, there's a cemetery in Eastern Pennsylvania. I wish I could remember the name that I did a batch of hinges for the, that group, um, saving some of their buildings. Um, the biggest batch of hinges that I did recently was for a, a new construction, reconstruction of a brewery in okay. Dayton, Ohio, um, where it was large, large uh, strap hinges. Um, oh, very cool. Anything from butterfly hinges to six foot long strap hinges has yeah. been the, the variety in that department. Oh, yeah. Um, were, the, were those doors then so wide or were, were they? Paul, the, they were like 12. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, big, big doors, um, fort gates, things like that. Um, in fact, um, kitchen hardware, cooking equipment. Um, a few years ago, I did all the equipment, uh, or most of the equipment, I should say, for the Renfrew Museum that's not too far from where you're working, um, that's west of Gettysburg. Okay. Um, they had an opportunity to move a stone kitchen to their museum, and uh, one of their people contacted me about supplying them with a fireplace crane and then uh, spiders and trivets and toasters and a whole variety of items. Very so cool. that gives you an idea of the, the broad spectrum that, that I do. Yes, yes. And I, I and that makes sense, though, that you would make a wide variety of things. I think traditionally blacksmiths would have would have made a wide variety of things. Uh, pretty much in North yeah. America, yes. Um, and and part of the research that um, I've been doing through the years, the first blacksmith that started me came from an artistic side, saying that blacksmiths don't shoot horses, farriers shoot horses, and <laughs> reality of it is in North America, uh, there was 
uh, a publication done a number of years ago that's basically somebody's master's project, and I can't remember her name, but she had journals of specifically blacksmiths in Pennsylvania, and the earliest one starting in the late 18th century and a lot into the 19th century. And if you look at the journals of these smiths, they were showing, a lot of them were showing horses as a small part of their business. Right. And uh, another friend of mine that did a master's uh, thesis on blacksmith shops in Wisconsin found a similar situation there that he came up with numbers that people like stats that he says about 60% of the business in blacksmiths in the rural areas is repair work. 25%. That makes sense. Yeah. 25% is, is shoeing and, and the other 15% is making new items. And a lot of people forget we were an agrarian society for so right. long that the village Smitty is going to be doing mostly repair work, occasionally right. making new items. Well, and it, it's, it's actually, you know, it's more, it's, it's it not only is it green, it's also being, you know, more, um, oh, I can't think of like economical. You know, be, you, you're 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 you've you've bought something that it was of value once, so it makes sense that you're going to repair it rather than just assuming everything's disposable. Right, right, yeah. and you know, in Philadelphia in the 1770 census, there were a hundred Smiths um, listed, and a lot of people also fail to remember that it was largest city at the time in the colonies with 20,000 people. Right. You know, we're over Smith's listed. If you're in a big city, that is where you get to specialize. And that's where people were indeed specializing and blacksmiths could be just ax makers or just sign makers or, or whatever. Um, industrialization is not really kicked in in North America yet, but right the concept of specializing was nothing new. It came in from Europe as well, but you know, like realtors like to say location, location, location. <laughs> that, that makes sense to me. So um, what I, I know that you've kind of came into this, um, not really sure what you were, what you were going to do. And, and you, you kind of started to, to fall in love with history and preservation and, and, you know, went into, went into the trade, but what do you wish that you knew when you started that, you know, now? Oh, I was afraid you were going to remember that question. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody would love to have the knowledge they have today and go back in time. But, oh yes. You know, um, and I really, I'm glad you sent those questions to me and I've been thinking about it and that's the hardest one for me to answer. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't do it. Uh, I completely you know, understand want, that. <laughs> yeah. um, doing a one man business and, uh, you know, doing the starving artist thing and all that other stuff is, is uh, pretty daunting. Um, to look at it, and I've actually talked a couple of young guys out of trying to go into business for themselves uh, because of the reality of it. Um, so in that regards, I'm glad I didn't know. I was right. just yeah. stubborn and bullheaded and said, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> right. Um, the, and about 15 years ago, um, I said to some friends of mine that 
now that I'm getting comfortable with the craft after doing it for about 20 years, I need to work on the business side. And the one friend said, you'll never be good at that. You love what you do too much. Um, <laughs> I can't believe that. So, <laughs> you know, that's one of the challenges uh, for an artist craftsperson. Right. And um, yeah, I'd love to have the skill set in the shop that I have now when I started my business. Right. But I didn't. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that every, every, every project you learn something from, um, yes. I, I know that, I know that we do. And, and there's a couple times where we've looked at a solution, you know, to a problem that we would have offered a completely different solution if we hadn't experienced, you know, something else, you know, so you do, you learn from, you learn from everything you right. do. Certainly. Yeah. I had a project with a, uh, a restoration group, um, in central Pennsylvania a few years ago. I had done some hinges and hardware for, for this guy and he contacted me and asked me for some specialized nails that he had a, a real special project. And I said, sure, can you give me more information? And he told me it was a Chinese cannon carriage project. Mm. And, and to make a long story short, which was really the whole process to me was just fascinating because the history part of it and everything. Right. But went over there to help them put things together it really didn't matter that it was Chinese versus English that I'm most conversant with as far as right. cannon go, 18th century English carriages. I told these guys, okay, we need to put these parts together so that I can make certain metal parts fit. And they're like, okay. And they were really proud. They got it put together. And then I said, okay, now we need to take it apart. And they just looked at me and said, what? I said, trust me. <laughs> so after a couple of situations like that, they started to trust me and said, you know, there's a whole lot more to put one of these together than they realized. Right. But even though I don't do wood, I know what needed to be done and what process to do things. And it did speed things up for them uh, because they weren't, you know, going through the, the mistakes we went through when we first started putting carriages together. Right. So there is definitely a learning curve um, and in some cases um, I spend more time figuring out how to make something than actually making right and I think I, I, I think that a lot of craftspeople go through that where you after you have like the whole project figured out and how it all fits together then you can go in and do it and it's it's a lot easier than you know not thinking of the, those steps through and ahead right yeah, I, I agree. So um, do you see any challenges or trends um, in preservation? Um, there's continually been challenges for me in um, educating clients, mm -hmm. and customers, yeah. uh, especially with ironwork. I get really frustrated to find out how much clients are willing to spend on wood parts and trim work and so on. And then they don't want to spend a nickel on hardware. Right. Yeah, and, uh, and hardware is so important for everything to, to work well. Good hardware is, yeah, it, it's, it's, I think it's essential. And sometimes I describe uh, decorative hardware anyways as jewelry for the building. <laughs> yes, yes. But I, I've seen too many times where somebody will spend a ton of money on a project 
and then they just want something bent and painted black and call it colonial. Right. And it's just so frustrating to say, you got it so far, take it the rest of the way. Right. And sometimes they just burn up their budget. Right. Uh, and, and never. Yeah. And there's a huge, huge variety. I mean, it's in everything, but it, there's a huge, a huge variety of, of, you know, hardware, like not, not all hardware is, is equal. And just because it looks the same, doesn't mean that it, you know, it's, it could be plated, you know, it's just some of it, it's just not, you know, the good hardware is, 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 is worth it. I, I think it's worth the investment because you're not going to have to buy new hardware, then it's not going to wear out. Right. And that's sometimes very hard to, um, get through to clients. Yeah. Museums really, really frustrate me at times for that. Um, when they fall into that trap and the, the other trend that I would like to see changed is, uh, especially in the museum world, but it can be applied, uh, applied to private individuals as well is using old iron on a new project. Uh, or using old blacksmith's tools in a new shop where they're going to be demonstrating. And um, it, it's just because it's an old piece of whatever doesn't right. necessarily mean it's historically correct for that setting. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I if it is historically correct, this is where my museum training comes in. You shouldn't use it. If it's, if it's <laughs> Where right. and tear or the weather, you shouldn't be using it. You should be displaying it in a preserved setting. Right. But don't you I don't care if it is an anvil, but if you're going to use an anvil, it shouldn't one look like it's 250 years old and beat the snot out of. And two, you can damage it. It might take more than other objects you're used to dealing with. Right. But you can damage it. And that's a one-of-a-kind item. It is. Even though there's a bunch of them out there, it's a one-of-a-kind item that you should preserve it, make it available to be studied for copying, put it on display, and that can be anything from, from tools to hardware to cooking utensils or whatever. Don't use it. Yeah. Display that, it, sure. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense to me, especially in uh uh like a demonstration kind of setting where you're you're going to continually use them and and yeah they could break i mean and and if they are you know period appropriate they should be you know displayed where people aren't 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 using them that that makes sense to me from a from a preservation standpoint too because once that's broken it could be repaired possibly but you know it's not it's not going to be the same as it was right and Oh, but it's just iron. It'll last forever. You know, <laughs> you know it'll last a lot longer than that garment you're studying. Sure. But right. Uh, yeah. It has a lifespan as well. And it could be indefinitely if you can, uh, uh, if you put it in the right setting. Yeah. Definitely. So that's, that's the, the trends I would like to see go beyond some of the major museums and into the smaller museums. Uh, I think the major museums are, much better about that attitude right yeah yeah so um is there anything that you wanted to cover that maybe i forgot to ask you about or that you thought of while we were talking 
Um, not that I can think okay. of. Okay. Well, very good. Well, how can our listeners contact you? Um, I actually prefer email. Okay. Over, over phone calls. Sure. And um, my email address is jymm Hoffman H O F F M A N at hoffmansforge.com. And there's an S after Hoffman. Okay. Yes, and we'll make sure that's also on our website where the what where the podcast episode will be with the kind of the synopsis, so that that if people listen and didn't get a chance to write it down, they can go there to find it too. Sure. So, sure. did you have anything that you'd like to promote? I I did see that you usually do educational seminars, but I'm sure those those are on hold for right now. Yeah, those are yeah. pretty much on hold these days. Um, well, the other thing that I do is consultations for okay. setting up a blacksmith shop at historic sites. Um, and whether it be a consultation or even helping supply the correct tooling. Um, I don't know if you heard the truck going by in the background in the industrial park uh, where the shop is. But okay. uh, consultations, uh, helping, I've helped several museums set up blacksmith shops and I continue to do that sort of work as well as okay. uh, provide cooling the hardware and so on. Very, very cool. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for your time. I really, I really appreciate it. I, I know that you have a busy product production schedule. So I'm glad we could get this fit in while you're, um, you know, in, in between, um, uh, projects. Thank you. Thank um, you. where will it be, uh, or broadcast? Oh. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.